0: Good morning. Good morning, Illuminate. So, so good to be with you. As Pastor Chris said, a special welcome to those of you who are with us for the first time. My name is Jason. Uh, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, I would love to be able to do that. Uh, as always, after uh, the services, I'm just hanging down, hanging out right here in the uh, in the front. So if you've been around for the last few weeks, uh, we've been opening up this ancient text known as the book of Genesis. And we've been understanding better what it means to have a relationship with a God who created us. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the different days of, of creation, and last week we focused on day six, and it was there that we saw God do something remarkable. He, he really takes his time to essentially assemble or put together what is the absolute crown jewel of all creation. And what we're told is that crown jewel is... It's you. It's you. Only humans are created in the image of God. So now the question is, what happens next? And that's, as I said, the the Bible is essentially the story of God's relationship with men and women. And so soon after creating them, male and female in his image, we begin to see the outworkings of that relationship. We read this in Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth, they were finished, and all the host, everything within them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and so he rested. He rested. On the seventh day, from all his work that he had done, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Why? Why? Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In case you missed it, it's repeated over and over again for the purpose of emphasis. God rested. Now, what does this mean? I don't know about you, but uh, at the end of a long work week, there's nothing better than a good, like, Saturday afternoon nap, you know? It just feels good. So is this what it was like for God? Does God wake up on the seventh day and is he like, oh, you know, that DNA stuff was really taxing. I just need to take a break, you know? No, it was nothing like that for God. Why? Because God has infinite creative capacity. Some people think God was kind of like Atlas, right? Just like straining under the weight of the world that he created. No, it's nothing like that. So you have to understand the meaning of the Hebrew word, rested, it means more than just being tired. It can also mean to stop, to cease. So picture it this way. It's like God has this creation canvas, and every day he's adding new works of art with the brush in hand. And then on day seven, He observes says it's complete and he stops he puts down the brush and then he makes that day holy and then later we learn he tells humanity since i stopped from my work on day seven you need to stop from your work And then our Jewish friends, right, come on the scene and they take this day seven of creation concept and refer to it as Shabbat, the Sabbath, one day a week, and they rest. If God needed and wanted a stoppage in his work, let me just speak to all the workaholics in the room, all the achievers and overachievers. You need to rest. You need to take one day a week and you need to cease from your work. Now, I don't know where I heard it first, but someone told me, if you work with your hands all week, make sure you Sabbath with your mind. I've told you before that my dad, just a super blue collar guy, the salt of the earth man spent decades as an auto body repairman right mechanic and he constantly had grease under his fingernail. and but those were the hands that supported a family of seven for many many years until he died five years ago you know he was even in retirement the man was working with his hands but he was an example of what it meant to have a Sabbath rest because I can picture him, even as a kid, he would sit in his favorite chair, and since he worked all week with his hands, he would Sabbath with his head, and there was this magazine I can picture him holding and reading for several hours, and that magazine, it's the kind of an old magazine, it's called National Geographic. Before they had the digital thing going on, they had it in print. And he would sit and he would read National Geographic because it opened up the world to this man that hadn't really, just hadn't had a lot of those kinds of experiences until he got older and retired and actually went on the mission field. I, I remember having to explain to him when I got a doctorate what that even meant. He had nothing more than an eighth grade education. But the man knew the importance of a Sabbath rest. So for me, I work with my head most of the week. And so the way I Sabbath is I work with my hands. I'll do some little projects with my hands because that brings me some rest, actually. So there are different ways you can Sabbath. The important thing is, the Apostle Paul mentions in the New Testament, let's not get legalistic over this specific day of the week, but let's make sure that we take a day and we just cease from the things that we are employed in, right, from our work. And I think it's important to ask ourselves if we aren't doing that, why? So let me just throw some reasons out there. It might be that, uh, you know, you're a workaholic uh, because you're greedy and you love to make money so you never take a day off. Or you might be a workaholic because there are some things going on under your roof that are untended and it's easier just to bury your head in the work rather than deal with some of the things that need to be taken care of. It can be for a lot of different reasons, but see, this is the goodness of God. He's like, look, I, I ceased on day seven from working. So it's good for you to do that, to reflect, to remember, to be refreshed. And we tend not to be good at it, especially here in the West. Verse 4, these are the generations, which is another way, if you were here a couple weeks ago, this word generations, you can actually divide the book of Genesis up by this phrase. These are the generations. generations. Generations means Genesis or beginnings of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is the Hebrew made the, or the earth and the heavens. So this is really interesting. We get an introduction into a, a special name for God because up until now, the word Elohim is the Hebrew word that's been applied to God. But now we read Yahweh Elohim, which is translated into English as Lord God. What this represents is significant because Yahweh is the personal name of God. So now what's happening is, as God interacts with man, what he wants you to know is, I'm not, I'm not distant, I'm about to get really personal. Now that I've created male and female in my image, I'm not leaving them alone. I want to enter into a personal relationship with them. And this is this is the way we, we understand God moving forward now. Yahweh Elohim, except there's this one one little moment where Yahweh Elohim doesn't show up. You know where it doesn't show up? When Satan and Eve are having a conversation about God. Isn't that interesting? They use the word Elohim, but they remove Yahweh. So in other words, it's as if they're they're described, they want to talk about God, but they don't want to talk about the personal nature of God. So they just refer to him as Elohim. And so they remove God's intention to be in relationship, almost like keeping him at a distance, who he really is while they're having this difficult conversation about the things he said, almost like as if they're questioning, is he really that personal, right? Does he really have what's in our best interest in mind? More on that next week translated into English as Lord God, Uh, for good reason. You know, it's interesting, the word Lord comes from the Anglo-Saxon word that literally means bread, isn't that interesting? The word Lord added through the Anglo-Saxon word means bread and here's why. Back in the day, men of noble character, they would open up the doors of their home leave those doors open and on the table inside the room, they would leave fresh baked bread for those who were in need. So as you're traveling out and about and you didn't have the means to feed yourself, if you were poor, you knew that you could always go to the bread man's house, the man with noble character. You could go to the house of the the Lord and he will supply you with what you need. So this is a really cool description of of God, the one who is supplying what we need, Yahweh Elohim. So up until now, in chapter 1, we've gotten these really broad brushstrokes of creation. But then what happens in chapter 2 is that we start to draw the lens in and we see the details, the outworkings of what we read in chapter 1. So there are some who think, well, the Bible can't be trusted because there's a big discrepancy between the creation account in Genesis 1 and the creation account in Genesis 2. That's not true at all. Chapter one is a broad overview. Chapter two simply draws the lens in so we, we get a closer perspective of the details. So there's a little bit of rewinding back to chapter one. You see that in verse five, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. So we're going back now to the early days of creation. This is an explanation of the time when the garden was untended, before the garden even actually existed. The earth was created, but it was, un, it was untended. And, um, and this is what the situation was like. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But a mist, and the ESV, the English Standard Version, has a little note. That translates mist as spring, and I like that. I think that's accurate because it describes these subterranean waters that were flowing. These waters were going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So there was, as of this point, not yet a rain cycle. It doesn't appear. So how was the earth watered? Well, uh, you know, maybe a, a more relatable example would be, as a kid, do you ever have one of those reptile terrariums, right? And, and, and they were watered essentially just by putting like a bowl of water inside. And then there was this process of, of evaporation and condensation. And so as things evaporated, it formed condensation inside there. And, and that's how the life plants and animals inside that, that terrarium were maintained. Perhaps something like that. Some people think that it didn't rain until the time of Noah. The Bible doesn't explicitly say that. Whatever the case, the point is this. The world is yet Untended, It needs to be taken care of. So in order to do this, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and then the man became a living creature. This is the part of creation where God rolls up his sleeves. And it says if he's this master potter at the wheel and he takes a little bit of the soil, a little bit of the dirt, a little bit of the clay of the earth and he begins for me. And just the slightest little movement affects the shape and the design. And of all creation, only male and female have this kind of divine... Think of it this way. The same God that creates the tiny atom that essentially holds things together and is the basic building block for everything, the same God that creates the universe, which we believe now to be expanding, is the same infinite creator that takes the time for this very special creation. By the way, this in part, in large part, is the cure for some of you and your, your suicidal thoughts. This, in part, is the cure for your deep-seated anxiety and depression. Because you are God's incredible, incredible, only you have God as the pattern. God has created so many things, incredible diversity, but only you are the imago Day created in the image of God. The word, Hebrew word for form describes very careful design. Isn't it interesting that we are created from dust? It's almost as if God says, yes, you are are of all creation, most unique, but I don't want you to think too much of yourself because at the end of the day, look at the ground, pretty common substance. That's what you come from. So don't think too highly of yourself now. It doesn't say that God created us from diamonds or gold, but from the most basic stuff on earth. I eat the bird that eats the bug that eats the leaf that eats the soil that eats me. You were created from dust, and you will return to dust. God's way of reminding us of our temporariness, this word, Hebrew word for breathe, is so, it's so beautiful. It carries two ideas, two big descriptions. This word was commonly used to describe the kind of breath that one uses to stoke a fire and to get it going. So if you really want to get a fire going, this isn't the kind of breath you use. You don't go. What are you doing? That's the kind of breath this word describes. There's another important description in this word and it describes being face to face with another person. This is the word that was used to describe how you can feel the presence of another person without physically touching them. How is that possible? Whew, that's how. So is this, this is kind of cool. So you put this together. Here's what the, the text tells us. This is really basic common stuff because God in his infinite creative capacity Can take and fashion into this creature. And so you have this face with nostrils. It's a face with nostrils. And God gets real close, face to face, breathe. And God takes a deep breath and. And suddenly, that creature is animated. And in that moment, what was created from dust becomes immortal. Ah, is that cool? The intentionality behind God's design of man. There's so much more than meets the eye. Now, I want to take this opportunity to say thank you, church family. 911, what is your emergency? Someone's been shot. They're bleeding. I, I don't think they're moving. Well, can you tell if they're breathing? Isn't that interesting? Why that question? Because without breath, there is no life. That's the surest indication of life. The biblical text is so rich when it says that It's the breath of God that actually gives life to man. And when that breath is gone, so is the life of man, at least on this side of eternity. So when my mom took her last breath three days ago, so many of you were so kind to me, my brothers, and my sister. And on behalf of my family, I just want to say thank you that's the beauty of having a church family is that you know nobody loves you like your mom and when you don't have her in your life no matter what your age is it's different not to mention that when both mom and dad are gone it is god's way of telling you you're next (laughs) don't you just love it you're next And Adam is animated, and he has incredible potential for glory and destruction. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. From the perspective of Moses, whom I believe is the author of Genesis, this would have been east of Sinai between the Tigris and Euphrates. That puts the Garden of Eden in modern day. Iraq. The word Eden means delight. This is a delightful garden. And then we find out just how delightful it is. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant. Isn't that cool? God begins to bless man and woman with these great physical sensations of pleasure. Tree was pleasant to the sight. It was beautiful to look at. When you look at something, you say, That's beautiful. That's Garden of Eden language. That's where it started. Because in God's goodness, He doesn't just create you in this black and white world that's full of monotone. No, but He gives you the ability to have pleasure, pleasant to the sight, and it was good for food. Not only will it sustain you physically, but you're going to enjoy the taste. And then there's these two trees that are super unique. Two one-of-a-kind trees. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and, and good and evil. So picture the garden and all its beauty, but right in the middle are these two trees next to each other, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge and, of good and evil. And a- as we'll see next week, make sure you come back next week because between these two trees, the destiny of man would be decided. So man is given the responsibility to tend this beautiful landscape. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So this is Adam before there was Eve. Let me speak to the men for a second. Men, it's good to work. Men, tend your gardens. See, the first garden God gives you is the garden of your own soul and life. Take care of it, tend it. Because if you don't, there's going to be some thorns and thistles and weeds that grow, and then it's going to become really gnarly for you. Tend your garden. Make sure you're uprooting the things that are robbing your life. You know, the healthiest way to maintain a lawn to prevent weeds is to make sure the grass is healthy. The best form of weed protect- protection is to make sure your lawn is healthy. Tend your garden, the garden of your soul. So isn't this interesting? Now, as you come to tend your own garden, God perhaps may entrust you with other things to tend, other gardens. Perhaps it's the, it's the garden of being a husband. Tend the garden of your marriage. Perhaps it's the garden of being a father tend the garden of your children but i'll tell you before god gave adam the garden of being a husband or a father god gave adam a job before he gave him a wife and kids god gave adam a job it's good to work Now at this time, work wasn't quite like what we have because sin hadn't entered the world and the ground had not been cursed. But there is a sense that work was meant to bring satisfaction. And the source of some of our dissatisfaction right now in our culture is that man is not working. Tend your garden. Now, what happens next is, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating details in all of creation. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Life was at the center of the garden, but so was the potential for death. Eating from the tree of life logically would have perpetuated life. But there's this other sharp distinction there. Um, Eat from this tree and you will die. And just one restriction, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, God gives incredible freedom. Just one restriction. But we always want what we don't have and we don't like being told what we can't do. Uh, This is not to say that up until this point, if Adam had not eaten from the wrong tree that he would have had eternal life. I like what John Calvin says. He makes an insightful comment. He says, Adam would have passed from earth to heaven seamlessly and without the pain and struggle of death. But when he ate from the tree, all of that changed. It, changed. In Hebrews, we read about this guy named Enoch and he was living such a righteous life that he never tasted death. God just took him from heaven to an earthly experience. And so perhaps, perhaps maybe I'm speculating a bit here, that's what it would have been like for all of mankind. Uh, But as we'll see more next week, uh, it wouldn't be so. God creates things perfectly, no intention for any of his creatures to die or suffer or or be sick or in, in poverty or be in any kind of danger. But he made it clear that there would be a very unwanted consequence if he was disobeyed. So um, note that Adam uh, had an invitation to eat from the other tree as well, the tree of life. And uh, it doesn't appear that he did. Um, Why? Because at its core, Adam was facing a temptation that you and I face every day. And the temptation was this, Adam was being tempted to seek wisdom apart from the wisdom of God. Let me repeat that. Adam was being tempted to seek wisdom apart from the wisdom of God. And so what's interesting is that when Jesus comes on the scene, he's actually described as the second Adam. And so in some ways, his life parallels Adam because there's this point where Satan comes to him when Jesus is out in the wilderness and and Satan tempts him. Matthew chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, that would be an understatement. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, we'll get more into the devil's schemes next week. It's the word, literally, we get our English word, schemata, blueprints. He's got a plan for how he works. Really smart, been working it for a long time, super consistent, why change what's so effective knowing human nature? It gets you to question if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now you're saying, hey, Jesus, go ahead and flex on your own apart from what God might want for you because you, if you have the power to do it, act on your own. But Jesus answered, it is written. He takes them back to the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see the game that Satan plays? He's crafty. Been at it for a long time his main line of destruction would be this don't rely on god rely on yourself why would you give up your personal autonomy well that's what adam chose and it led to death so what you do with god's words is everything let me repeat that what you do with god's words That's everything because we are all wisdom seekers. You're all receiving wisdom and truth from someone or something. And you know what's interesting? It's like every day we're we're faced with these two trees, right? I can can choose to eat from the tree of life, which represents the wisdom of God, or or I can choose to eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which represents my own wisdom. Here's what's fascinating. In, at the end of human time, the tree of life actually shows up again in what will be a recreation of God's intention in, in a new heavens and earth with a new garden, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its, Then you get this is you ever wonder what the tree of life looked like in the garden? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. How cool is this tree? This is like a fruit of the month tree. You can't even begin to understand what a recreated Garden of Eden is going to look like. It's going to blow your minds. This tree doesn't even exist right now. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. This is all language that takes you back to Genesis chapter 2. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. Remember when we talked about how when God creates, one of his first acts of creation was to separate light from darkness. That comes before the sun is created. And we said, how is that light brought? It's brought by the very presence of God, because check this out. Night will be no more. They will need no light of, the lam- of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. When God shows up in creation, what happens? He's just light. And they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place place what takes place is the return of jesus so let me just uh, wrap it up by asking you this question what is the source of your wisdom hebrews chapter 4 describes the bible like this for the word of god is living and active here's how sharp it is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit it can it can divide what is immaterial pretty sharp of joints and, and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you really wanna know what's going on in your mind and heart, read your Bible because it's gonna tell you the truth. So, uh, let's see, let me put it like this. Which tree are you eating from? Because one tree contains fruit that will actually nourish your soul. Another tree, you know what, it is? it's like this. It's like one tree has the, the fruit that will feed you, nourish you. The other tree, and here's the sinister thing about it. Again, more about this next week. I, I actually think that fruit, it looks really good. You pluck it and you begin eat. You eat. Pl- you look at it and you're like, oh, how beautiful is this? How beautiful. And then you bite into it. And you know what you realize? Wait a minute. This is wax fruit. You ever notice how beautiful wax fruit is? It's gorgeous. It's the platonic ideal of fruit, but it's not real. Oh, but man, does it look good. It looks good enough to eat. And so, have you ever had a mouthful of wax? <laughs> yeah, it'll probably stop your stomach from grumbling. I don't feel too good. Which tree are you eating from? If you're here this morning and you're like, I don't know, man, I feel like the life's being drained out of me. It's because you're not feasting on the wisdom of the wisdom of God, but you're plucking fruit from the wrong tree. So you know, you know what's amazing? We're about to enter into a time of communion, that is communion with God through what his son Jesus made possible. Jesus, in that moment with his disciples, he would utter utter the words, take and eat, which is a reference to Genesis two and three, because somebody else uttered those words. Satan said, take and eat. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Bible. When Jesus said take and eat, he's saying, I'm about to restore what was undone. The words that Satan spoke to you brought death when he said take and eat. But when I say take and eat, I'm bringing to you words of life. So Father, as we enter into this time, God, by the power of your spirit, would you just, uh, would you bring it? Would you allow each one of us to meditate on the source of our nutrition? And God, I pray for those in the room that they might be hearing some of these these things for the first time. Father, a special prayer for them. Lord, the reason why you came was to rescue people from just what is a poor nutritional diet that robs us of life. So, Lord, as we take the next few moments just to meditate, ask ourselves the question, what is the source of our wisdom? And what does it need to be? Speak to us now before we partake of what you told us to. For our benefit and for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.